19. If you were with us last week, we were in the first half of 19, which is uh, Paul in Ephesus, and we're going to spend a little bit more time in that city, a very important city, because uh, uh, the book of Ephesians is written back to these people. Uh, the church, one of the churches that Jesus addresses in, re- in the book of Revelation uh, is the, the church in Ephesus, and, and so this is the precursor of what uh, preceded in, those, in that, that book and in Revelation. Man, I'm thirsty this morning. All right. Uh, so uh, for us, we're going to be there and we're gonna, just going to see what is God doing as he uh, brings about and expands his kingdom uh, throughout what we see here, the Mediterranean region. And so this is the third of Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, he's traveled around going out from Jerusalem, then to the region right around Judea and Samaria, and now he's beginning to go to the ends of the earth uh, and the, the Gentile world, that many of which that don't know the things of God. And so we're going to be looking at Acts 19, starting in verse 21, and go to the end of the chapter. But just like we do every week, uh, we want to submit ourselves to the Word of God. He's speaking, and we long to hear from Him So would you just recognize that and even symbolize that by standing as we hear from God's word to us this morning. So Luke, the author of Acts, writes this. Now after these events, uh, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him uh, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
And some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it, should be, uh, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when, they heard, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What a very anticlimactic story but really interesting and telling at the same time. So let's pray and just ask God to speak to us by his word. So Father, uh, we come before you and we know that this is your word speaking to your people and we want to submit ourselves to it. So Father, would you, by your spirit, would you carry your word along with power? Would it uh, accomplish everything that you desire? Would you convict us of sin? Father, would you convict us of our idolatry, of our trusting in uh, or being controlled by so many things in this world other than you? And then, Father, would you replace that with a love and a uh, us um, knowing that you alone are our treasure? And so, Father, we pray that you would, through an interesting story of uh, Paul and his companions, God, would you speak to us? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, please be seated. You've probably had the experience at some point where you uh, tried to wake somebody up that was like really, really in a deep, deep sleep, you know, and, um, you, you know, I see some people tapping people next to them or elbowing, you know, you try to wake them up and they won't be awoke. And, and so you're kind of shaking them. And then all of a sudden they are like startled out of their sleep and they are awake, right? You have just disrupted their sleep. You have just stopped what they wanted to be doing. And now, but not only are they awake, but they are awake and they are alert. They are ready uh, to uh, notice what in the world uh, uh, awoken them, or whatever the word is, awakened them. Uh, they were, uh, but even in life, maybe you're not sleeping, but at times we are awakened to the reality uh, when life is disrupted enough to wake you up, Right? Think of all the disruptions that can often come into our life. Well, we're living in the middle of what we might say might be one of the greatest disruptions of our lifetime in this COVID-19 quarantine and pandemic. It's a disruption. Disruptions also come in the form of job loss, sickness, 
uh, difficulty in relationship, be it that of uh, a marriage or a breakdown in a friendship or difficulty in relationships within the church. Uh, Maybe it's a struggle at school. Students, you just started school and possibly your disruption has already started uh, in the last week or two because school is just rocking your world. Or maybe when you have plans and those plans get frustrated. You want to go this way and life does not allow you to go that way and you're going a totally different direction or you're stopped altogether. Disruptions are real in this life. The list goes on and on, uh, but the, the sense is, is not that disruption is necessarily bad. In our passage this morning, I would submit to you that this idea of disruption is actually a really good thing. It's a, it's a very needed thing, but I would say to you that by his grace, God will disrupt, but not just disrupt our lives, but he will disrupt our idolatry. He will disrupt our idolatry because that's what's going on here. The people of Ephesus are disrupted. Uh, their, their life was clipping along nicely, and now all of a sudden, God deviates their plans. You know, if you were someone who was heading for danger, you know, be, be it a, a cliff or a huge, huge hole or something like that, you know, would it be loving, if I knew what you were heading towards, would it be loving for me to let you continue uh, and hurt just going headlong towards your demise? Would that be love for me to let you continue? Of course not. Nobody in their right mind would let their friend or loved one continue towards that kind of danger. It, it, it's, it's that love, love would disrupt somebody. Love would stop that. Love would, uh, would enter in, in in such a way. And so disruption... Sometimes it's annoyance, sometimes it's bothersome, but oftentimes it's a gracious thing. You know, think of a parent with their children. You know, a parent doesn't just discipline for discipline's sake. A loving father, a loving mother will discipline for the sake of redirecting their children. Now, every kid in here is like, no, that's not what's going on. They're just mean. But every child that has become an adult understands that that's not what's going on. A parent seeks to disrupt the course of a child's life so that they would be redirected towards a better path, towards honoring the Lord, towards following him. Disruption, though we don't like it, oftentimes is a needed thing, and even God in his grace brings it. And so what do we see here is a disruption, We see that disruption here in Ephesus. So we heard uh, some interesting phrases. Look at verse 24. Uh, The the businessman, Demetrius, is is saying that there's no little business. Um, uh, Basically, another way of saying like, you know, hey, uh, this is kind of getting, it's cramping our style, right? Verse 26, turned many people, uh, that they have turned away a great many people. Verse 29, the city was filled with confusion. This was over Paul and his companions speaking the truth of the gospel, speaking of the kingdom that we looked at last week. And what was the event that happened from last week that we looked at was so many people came to faith in Christ, their lives were transformed, 
that they, remember, they were uh, wrapped up in sorcery or, or some kind of like magical spells and all that. They took those books of sorcery and they burned them. And remember how much was burned? It was the equivalent of 50,000 uh, days wages. That's a boatload of money. 50,000 days wages were burned because of the transformation of the gospel. And so the gospel is starting to take root in this city and it's starting to disrupt everybody else's life. Especially this businessman. He's losing business. The city was in an uproar. Imagine that. Societal change without legislation. We live in an interesting country in an interesting government that, that God has given us a republic. We have a voice in our government, and that's a good thing. Yet, it is not the ultimate thing. So let's not put our government as our savior, and let's let the power of the Holy Spirit transform culture. Now, he will use at times legislation. I'm not saying I'm not anti that. But I think we can invert the order that we need government to do uh, what we want as opposed to the power of the Spirit. So let's not miss that God can change cultures without legislation by the power of the Spirit. And this disruption is coming, and this disruption is hitting this city, but what is being revealed is really interesting, is that it's not just disruption, but God in his grace is disrupting these people from their idolatry. So what does verse 27 say? says that they're, they're, he's talking that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So idolatry, an idol, is worshiping anything other than the living God. Anything. Okay, and so, uh, so in Roman culture, which the Roman gods and the Greek gods, they're really the same, but they have different names. Um, and uh, so the Greek goddess Artemis was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of sexuality. They had some very scandalous worship practices to her as the goddess. And this entire city was the keeper of that temple. So it's not just that they had a God in their city that they worshiped that was other than the living God. They, their very existence was wrapped up in caring for this goddess. The goddess of fertility and sexuality. And so idolatry, it could be uh, taking the form of, of, of like Artemis uh, and being labeled as a god. But I would submit to you from the scriptures that idolatry is anything that controls you. Anything that you worship other than the living God. Anything that if you lost it, you would feel like life is no longer worth living. That's a pretty broad definition. So what do we see? They, these people in verse 27, there's a worship of the goddess Artemis. But what else is being worshipped in this city? Verse 25. What else is in the mix? Remember? So this guy's business is being affected. He's starting to lose money. He's starting to wonder about his well-being. He's like, is his future, uh, what's it look like? Men, 
you know that from this business, basically making little shrines to the goddess Artemis, from this business we have our wealth. So sure, I worship Artemis, but that really serves me well. And if we lose Artemis, then my well-being is out the window. And my wealth is questioned. Money, just as much as worshiping a foreign god, is at the heart of their idolatry. Man, we're starting to sound a lot like the United States, aren't we? They served the god of sexuality. They worshiped at the god of money. And what is Paul saying? He says that those idols are powerless. Anything that controls you, anything that has your attention, ultimately, other than the living God, is powerless, yet it controls you. So there is a power to to it, but it's powerless in that it can't deliver what you want it to deliver. But it is powerful because it's powerful enough to actually control you. That's a scary thought. It can control you, but can't deliver on what it promises. That's the nature of an idol. It's not the living God who gives and provides what he says. He can fulfill his promises. The living God is there, but idols are powerless. Verse 26, uh, he, he goes on, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, this is the kicker, that gods made with hands are not gods. That ought to be pretty obvious. But they're saying, again, they're in the business of like building little shrines to this goddess. Well, gods made with hands, they, they are not gods. That was Paul's point. It's not exactly earth-shattering. But is it? Because we find ourselves worshiping things uh, that other than the living God all the time. What does God reveal or expose through disruption? What has God exposed to you? What has he revealed in your life during this COVID quarantine? Because I would imagine... The very different things as you know as we've gone on you know six months or so into this uh and you know d- different things from what do you trust in what has he revealed in your life that you trust in far more than you ever realized because american ideals are pretty similar to what's going on in ephesus build your life the way that you want it Nobody else can tell you how to live your life. Go get it. Figure out what you want. Go after it. That's the life worth living. That feels like modern America. It feels like the sense of idolatry. Because we're worshiping the life that we want rather than the living God and what he would bring into our lives. And so God in his grace disrupts us. You might be one that walked in this morning and you are feeling disruption. And we hate it, don't we? We want the life back that we had. The life that was just clipping along nicely and it didn't have any hiccups, no speed bumps. I want that life back. But could it be that God is disrupting you? 
by his grace so that you might see. What, is he, what might he be revealing to you? So that could be by his grace he disrupts. But when our idols are threatened, not even when they're ultimately just taken away, but even when they're threatened, we react violently. Okay? So think of something that's, you know, not exactly worth much, but that you, you know, you like kind of having, you know, uh, like a pen, you know? This is, uh, I actually got this pen a couple weeks ago. It's, I like this pen, right? But have you ever washed the pen that you like? You know, you misplace it, or somebody in your family borrows it and it disappears, and uh, <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> Amen, that's right. Uh, and, um, and I'm going to get in trouble for that one. But uh, anyway... So when someone, or your pen disappears, right? We feel annoyed, we feel bothered, we feel frustrated, but our life is not going to end because we lose a pen, right? We don't exactly react, or we ought not react too violently when something like a pen, something of minimal significance is taken away. But when we lose something that we love, when we lose something that we've devoted our entire life to, when we've lost something that we've crafted our life around, how do you feel? You're ready to fight. You erupt. We act violently because someone has taken away the thing I have set my heart on. Everything in this world can be taken away except the living God who transcends. That's why the resurrection is so important, because he is the God who was and is and is to come. He is the God who is alive. He conquered death. He, his glory cannot be taken away. And so when we lose something we love, we, are, uh, that we erupt. Even when those things uh, that we love are threatened, when someone is threatening what we love most, we react violently. How did they react? Verse 28 and 29. Basically, a riot breaks out. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's repeated later in our chapter. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. When their idols, not just Artemis, but money, their well-being, their future, when that is threatened, they react. A riot breaks out. They were enraged. They were, the city was filled with confusion. It's the second time confusion is mentioned. I think that's fitting. They were dragging these guys away into the theater. And this is not like, hey, you know, they, they pull two guys into this room and a couple hundred of us are talking to them. Here's the picture of what they were dragged into. This is the theater in Ephesus, okay? 25,000 seat auditorium. They were dragged there and that's why they pleaded with Paul not to go. Because they were like, Paul, this is not going to go well for you. And they pleaded with him and wouldn't let him go. And so the riot breaks out. They fill that stadium to basically bring down their violent reaction against someone taking their livelihood and the things that they held so dear. Verse 32, now some cried out, 
one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had even come together. Now, that's a bit of humor uh, that Luke is throwing in there. But some people just like a good argument, right? So, yeah, I'm on board. You know, man, we can yell for two hours. Uh, And so they go, but again, their livelihood was, was being questioned. They didn't know exactly what was going on, but they're there. They're yelling. They're screaming. It's a violent reaction against somebody threatening the things that our heart is set on. Verse 34, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What's interesting is that second time in verse 34 is a response to a man named Alexander, who was a Jewish man. Remember, Paul went into the synagogue and for three months hung out in the synagogue uh, and until they, they basically kind of wouldn't listen. And Uh, And so a Jewish man stands up to defend their idols, or at least to be against Paul. And they they react against him. I'll take that back. He wasn't defending Artemis, but he was going to speak against Paul, and they wouldn't even let him speak. So when God disrupts, our idols are exposed. So here's the litmus test. Okay, this one might be really eye-opening. Please notice why you get angry this week. Anger is a wonderful litmus test. It's an amazing indicator of where your heart is set. Because we get angry when something blocks us from getting what we love. We get angry when somebody threatens to take away what we love. We get angry when something has been taken. Now, at times there is righteous anger. I will submit to you that most of our anger is not. It's because somebody is going to take the idol that I love and I have set my affection on. Someone's going to take it away or threatening it and I'm angry about it. So if I am angry when my kids don't listen to me, am I really angry at their disobedience? Maybe. Or am I angry at something deeper, uh, that my word isn't carrying the weight that I want it to, that my house is disrupted, that what am I angry about? There really is no one answer to that question. You know, the easy one, when someone cuts you off in traffic, why do we get so angry? But it goes way beyond that. Find yourself when you are angry, when you're watching the news and all of a sudden you're about to just scream at the TV. Why? Our anger helps us see what our, our hearts are set on. Take note. God might be disrupting you by your own emotion and he might be helping you to see the idols of your heart. Because what's interesting is there's another idol in play in the book of, uh, in this chapter. Because notice the, the speech that ends this, uh, this passage. It's not by Paul. It's not by the guys they drug in. It's by the city clerk. The city clerk stands up and gets everybody to, to, to quiet down and, and hear this. So, and when the town clerk, verse 35, had quieted the crowd... 
He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Let me hit pause there. So he's basically saying, guys, come on. Everybody knows we, you know, that, that Artemis is great. Everybody knows we're the keepers of Artemis. And everybody knows that last phrase there, that the stone or the image of Artemis fell from the sky. It wasn't made by hands. Is actually the point he's making. That it fell from the sky like a meteor, and they propped it up and, and put it into the temple of Artemis. And that's where it, he goes, everybody knows that. So why y'all in a huff? But he goes on uh, to, to keep going. Seeing then that these, uh, these things cannot be denied, meaning that Artemis is uh, not made by hands, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Verse 40, starts, the idol starts to bubble up. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they heard these things, he dismissed the assembly and they went home. So they went from a riotous uproar to, yeah, good point, and they all went home. Why? Because the idol of their heart was, oh, wait a second. If we riot, we're going to bring martial law of the Romans on us. Because we don't even have reason, in, in according to Roman law, to riot. And his point is, if y'all keep going like this, that y'all is my translation, uh, if, if you keep going like this, we're going to lose all of what we love. And that's the life as we know it. The nice, semi-charmed life that we live, where we have abundance, where we have our well-being, and everything is wrapped up in that. If we don't stop, we're going to lose the thing that we really love. Not Artemis, but our life as we have crafted it. And so the idols of the heart are being revealed. And when those things are pushed against, we react violently. So it's one thing to say something is powerless. Okay? That's what, that's what Paul is saying. God's made by hands or God's not made by God, uh, anything other than something that's made by God's hand is powerless. And even the things that God has made are not meant to be worshipped. He is. It's one thing to say something is powerless. It's another to show something that could replace it. Does that make sense? So as we see our idols as powerless... As we see our idols as powerless, the, 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 Jesus' beauty and his worth, they radiate out. It's not just your idols are pointless. That's the beginning point. But your idols are powerless, but Jesus is more beautiful and more worthy than anything you have set your heart on. The freedom from idols is finding something, or in this case, the reality, someone of much greater worth. 
something to supersede uh, the, the other love of your heart, something that would, is even more glorious. So think back when you were a kid, right? You would crack open that can of SpaghettiOs, right? And you, I loved those things. You know, you put those things in the microwave and, uh, you know, you got a nice Italian dinner going. My heart was set on SpaghettiOs until, until I grew up and realized that there was real authentic Italian cuisine. I'm talking downtown St. Louis Italian food. And if you haven't been there, highly recommend it. Our love for something that's really not all that glorious needs to be replaced by something greater. So now that I have found real Italian food, I really have no desire for SpaghettiOs. <laughs> it's probably good. Uh, what's the real healing of the idols that control us? It's not just they're bad. Keith, get rid of them. <laughs> good luck. Because you'll pick up another one or you'll go get that one back. Something else has to drive it out. Thomas Chalmers, one of the Puritans, would, would call it the expulsive power of a new affection. We spent a lot of time looking at that. That, that a, a new love of your heart drives out all others. And in verse 20, going back to what we looked at last week, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's interesting that, that it wasn't just that the, the word grew. It wasn't just that the word uh, kind of went out and increased in number. The word prevailed. That is an interesting description of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord prevailed mightily. It was powerful. It was able. It was strong enough to supersede the idols that these people of, the, of, uh, of Ephesus had served. They burned 50,000 days' wages when they came to know Christ. Here we see the idols of people's hearts, and it is the word of the Lord that is able to prevail, to conquer, to supersede, to, to actually bring about a change. And where does, that, that, where does the word point? It, the word of the Lord points right back to the kingdom of God. It points right back to the work of Jesus on the cross. The word of the Lord points back to his life, his death, and his resurrection. So that we might have forgiveness and we might have real life. We're going to get to end our service with a baptism. We get to end our service with a recognition of God prevailing and God's word prevailing over someone's heart. We get to see uh, how God captures the hearts of men and women that he has become Roy and Amy's greatest treasure. Is he yours? It's a sobering question. Let's pray. Father, would you be in our midst? Would you, uh, by the power of the Spirit, would your word prevail over us today? God, help us to see the idols of our hearts. Father, help us to see that they are powerless. Father, help us to even 
uh, divulge them as, as the word was used in the, la- in the last part of this chapter, or the first part of this chapter, where these people walked away from those things that their heart held dear. God, I pray that we would see your glory, your beauty, your worth. And Father, as we treasure you above everything else, God, would you drive out other idols? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.